0: Please rise, court is now in session.
1: All rise. All rise. rise. Is it legal to a regular look at the legal system and you. It's a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty,
2: And I'm Farrah Fite. Today we're going to be looking at the right to assemble or assembly and touching on the fact that our nation was created through assembly and protest to the country that was overseeing it at the time and then also that so many of us as Americans join together and assemble for different types of celebrations.
1: You know, people throughout the world wish they had the protections that we have of our First Amendment. Which of our protected rights is the most important one in a free society will always be debated, but millions of people in other parts of the world would risk their lives when they assemble and demand their government make changes. And we can just do this as part of our constitutional rights.
2: That's right. The Constitution protects our rights to peacefully assemble and seek redresses of the grievances against the government. That right is also the basis for other rights, such as freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press.
1: But generally, stating a right does not define that right. Just what is protected by the Constitution when we talk about assembly? How far can we go in exercising that right?
2: We'll explore the right to peaceably assemble with Professor Christina Wells from the University of Missouri School of Law. She specializes in First Amendment protests and conflict resolution, and she's written several articles about protests and free speech. Christina, Professor Wells, thank you for joining us.
3: Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about this. The right
1: to assemble and to protest is a topic that is, as the movie promotions used to say, ripped from today's headlines. Are we seeing more protests or are they just more visible these days?
3: Uh, It's a little bit of both. I think we are seeing more protests because there is more visible conflict and conflict that hasn't been resolved is bubbling to the surface on very important, very visible topics that uh, conflict that's gone on for a long time. So we've always had protests. We've had protests since, especially in this country, since the time it was formed. And you can see various aspects of those protests and various eras of it as time has gone on. But even after the Vietnam protests, which are the sort of culminating ones that a lot of people talk about having caused a huge scar in this country, there were lots of different protests. There were protests uh, in solidarity with people in Poland. I remember those when I was in college. There were protests about anti-apartheid. There were anti fur There were all sorts of protests on behalf of LGBTQ rights. So there were protests, but we just weren't seeing them as visibly because they didn't capture the attention of the entire country.
1: Let's look at the historical perspective a little bit, though. Our whole country is born out of protest, but why is peaceful protesting so important that it is part of the Constitution and the First Amendment of the Constitution? What in our background makes it that important?
3: I think part of it has to do with lack of technology, certainly, and the way that people got together. But it also has to do with the way that people thought of self-governance back at the time that the First Amendment was adopted. So, the two things that I think the framers of the Constitution really viewed the right of assembly as protecting are the right of people to think out loud with one another about how they wanted to respond to the government, about how they wanted to think about how to govern themselves. And one of the only ways that you could do that at that time, obviously, was to be able to get together, whether it was in an assembly hall or to march outside. But they needed public space to do that, and they needed to be able to do it collectively. So the important thing about the right to assembly is to remember that it is a collective right. It's not an individual right. It's the right of people to get together to talk. So that's one important thing about what the framers were thinking, that it's protecting a right of people to sort of think out loud with one another and to deliberate with one another about how they wanted the country to go. So it is an important self-governance aspect. But the other thing that I think when you read a lot of the history of the framing of the Constitution and the First Amendment and when it was adopted, people really viewed it as a check on government power. So for people to be able to go out and gather and express their discontent with something that government actors had done, the collective power is very important. It's much more powerful than simply writing a letter saying, I disagree with what you're doing. So that expression of collective discontent was something that was an important thing to protect.
2: We talked in an earlier episode with a colleague of yours, Dean Litsky, about freedom of speech and how that really applies not to freedom of speech when it comes to a private corporation such as A social media platform has the right to censor you. It's the government that you have the right to free speech with. Is the same true for assembly? Or do you have that collective right to assemble against and protest or celebrate private entities?
3: You have the right to protest, period, in a public space. You can protest whatever you want. You have the right to express your discontent about Exxon or IBM or Apple or whatever you think is happening. In fact, a lot of the right of assembly and what we think of as important about it, especially in the early 20th century, came out of labor protests, right? So those were assemblies and grievances that were being raised about private entities and their labor practices. The question was, and always has been, how the government responds to regulating or allowing those collective Gatherings because they can be very large. So, a lot of the question becomes we have the right of assembly. Are there any restraints on it? Can the government put restraints on it for any particular reason? How is it that we're going to respond to these very loud and often boisterous crowds or assemblies, whether they're outside or whether they're inside in a meeting hall, right? So, what is the government's right in terms of being able to regulate those? And that's where the First Amendment issues come in, the government's ability to rein in those assemblies.
2: And in the right to peaceably assemble or assembly, what all does that include? Is it only protest or does that include like your rights to petition or are vigils considered part of that, celebrations? I guess it, it doesn't entail more than just the idea to protest or, you know, shake your fist. Um, so it... The
3: right to assembly has become somewhat complicated in the 20th century, partly because the Supreme Court hasn't really given it its own protection as the right to assembly. It almost always reviews government attempts to regulate it just simply under its free speech rules right? or under its freedom of association rules. So the right to assembly has kind of forked into two different areas. So when you think of the rules or the challenges that have reached the Supreme Court in the free speech area, it almost always is protests, right? So people who gather in protests, a protest would probably include a vigil. So any gathering of people who are in one form or another, largely dissenting against either government or some other large entity's actions, right? And a a protest can have just a very large, broad definition, but the notion of assembly can also include gatherings, right? Simply people gathering together to worship together or to have like-minded meetings, right? So, And that's very much consistent with the way that it was historically, an assembly of people just to get together and have a meeting on a topic about which they were concerned. Those issues tend to have now kind of been approached by the supreme court differently and really under the freedom of association issues so it's my the answer my long-winded answer to your question is an assembly can be a lot of different things any gathering of people the court just looks at them differently depending on what they think the issues are that are raised by that assembly of people
1: some communities require permits before there can be parades or assemblies of one kind have the courts ruled on whether permits are an infringement on the right of assembly?
3: They have. There have been several cases, a lot of them stemming from the 1940s, really, that have said that permits are not per se unconstitutional, right? And that's kind of a broad backwards statement because they haven't given us a lot of guidance on when permits are okay. There have been a couple of cases where they've heard challenges to permitting systems that have had sort of a very restrictive rules, making it difficult for protests to occur. We do know some things. The permitting system can't discriminate against protest groups, for example, based on the content of their speech. So it can't discriminate against groups' viewpoint, for example. But they've also said that content-neutral time, place, and manner requirements are okay generally, but that's where things get a little sticky. There have been a lot of difficult issues raised by what, whether time, place, and manner restrictions, I guess I would say, are really allowing protests to occur in in a way that allows the protesters to reach their audience. The courts allow permitting systems. There's a lot of challenges at the lower court level as to what The legitimacy of those systems is, but they seem to mostly be upheld.
1: Is there a place where the government's authority to protect public safety, regardless of what the intent of the gathering is, collides with the right to have that gathering?
2: Or I might have an example that can help if I think I'm on the same page, Bob. So when I was in college, I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee Okay. and every Martin Luther King day holiday, the Ku Klux Klan would okay. fill out the forms and hold mm-hmm. a parade on that holiday. So I guess the question would be, I went when interning for a local TV station, covered it and there was a peaceful protest and that those who would go to observe it would, would turn that back to the parade route but if I guess if they thought that something dangerous could happen at that parade or just their mere presence could escalate into violence or, you know, the average citizen working downtown or going downtown could be harmed. Could the government then say, no, we're not going to let you have this parade? Is is that along the lines that you're. You're thinking, Bob?
1: Yeah, or or even deny access to certain areas by protesters and things like this. You can't have it downtown, it, it, but
2: you can go to this remote neighborhood and
3: yeah, have it. Yeah, yeah. yeah abs- Certainly, security concerns are one of the biggest reasons for why parade routes are rerouted, for why protests are not allowed on the grounds of the nuclear reactor here in Columbia, for example. There are there absolutely security concerns are part of legitimate considerations when courts or sheriffs or whoever in the city manager's office is tasked with issuing the permit determine whether a group's request is okay or whether there are these neutral time, place, and manner requirements that it's going to use to say, no, we're going to change it or we're going to deny it. Usually without Very serious national security or public security concerns, um, and I would even say national security concerns, for example, the nuclear reactor, you know, you can't protest on the grounds of the nuclear reactor or something along those lines. They have not denied the right to protest. They have not denied permits. What they will do is reroute them or move them certain distances away. That's been pretty highly criticized by a lot of academics. For example, and certainly the lawyers representing the protesters as well. At a lot of the national conventions for the presidential elections, there were decisions to move protesters something like a half mile away from anywhere near the convention center, so that nobody entering the center could even knew they existed. Right? Like, so it's like, well, you can protest, but you know, if a protester says something and nobody hears it, right? Is it really a protest? I'm sorry, those yes, are just for- those are security concerns that the courts upheld to say, yes, we can move you away. There's too much of a concern here about problematic security issues.
1: The one I'm most familiar with personally is as a reporter in my reporting career, I covered twenty two executions. and mm-hmm. each t- each time that I drove to the prison, there was a designated area set up, usually just outside the gate. Mm-hmm. or the anti death penalty people to to set up a whatever protest they wanted to do they couldn't go pick at the the entrance to the building they were given permission to be out there so that's that's the kind of control that you're talking about
3: yes and that's not uncommon where they will keep protesters a certain distance away from entrances that has happened in anti abortion protest cases it's happened in the cases you're talking about death penalty cases where it, whether it's security or simply access to ingress and egress of buildings where they need for they don't want people to block and so they're making sure that they have a, a certain distance kind of a bubble zone created that's been a pretty common thing for courts to allow after they've been created in the last 30 years. So bubble what we call them bubble zone in sort of academic literature, where they've created a certain distance, whether it's for security concerns or access concerns that the courts are pretty willing to uphold.
2: We've seen in protests that have been or assemblies that have been just enormous in size of people who have, have attended. And I you know, I'm sure that there were others before this, but my first thought goes back to the events in Ferguson, you know, all the way through Charlottesville and then in recent years here in Missouri and across the nation, we've seen different peaceable assemblies, typically along a parade route or designated to a certain area in a community. Do those who are there to collectively assemble and share their thoughts, do their rights end if they go beyond that permanent area? Like at what point... Are you crossing the line of losing your right and, you know, potentially being asked to go home or even worse, being arrested?
3: So that is a pretty controversial issue right now. So if, for example, you're and the examples that have been used, I know there were some issues in New York City with protesters. I want to say it was during the Occupy era where people were protesting they were walking along a parade route and if they deviated if anyone walked off of the parade route at all they were immediately arrested by police and there was clearly a group of people who were like look well, you know it was a mistake or we didn't know or you you're just waiting to get us right so there's a, a significant issue as to the extent to which permitting requirements where you're given an area or you're given a parade route, and then it's used to punish you later, the extent to which there's tension in that. Because there's certainly a city municipality under the law has a right to want to make sure that things, especially with these large gatherings, don't completely go off the rails. But the extent to which people who go out of that then should be arrested, I think is a much harder question. And that is one that I think people are, are grappling with still right now.
2: Living in the state capital of Missouri, there are often protests at the capital, and those sometimes spill over to other streets around the capital that maybe weren't permitted. I've observed arrests happening in those situations. I know that uh, the legislature this year considered legislation that would basically create criminal offenses for those who blocked highways or traffic in their efforts to protest. I guess, where did those fall? will that ultimately be up to the court where that balance is out between the right to peaceably assemble and the right for public safety?
3: Well, that is the new era of this legislation. So... Before a lot of these laws were enacted and they're all going to be challenged, there's no question because they target protests as protests, right That's a big issue is the extent to which you're burdening speech only and not something else right along the way and you're burdening it for criminal penalties as opposed to just requiring someone to tell the state, hey by the way, we want to have a protest, is that okay? Let's work to some mutually acceptable solution. Now you're saying if you do this, here are the criminal penalties, some of which are felonies. That's, those are two very different approaches. But to be clear, before any of those were enacted, states and cities could, and the police did, arrest people for breach of the peace, trespass, disturbance, all sorts of minor arrests that are very vague and easy to use at your discretion. And that's been another area of concern For civil rights lawyers and academics is the extent to which you can use sort of minimal misdemeanor charges to arrest protesters and to sort of chill their willingness to participate in future protests. One of the things that happens is that people will go to court and one of the strings that will get attached by the prosecutor is this sense of, well, we'll drop this charge as long as you don't have any more charges in the next year. Well, basically, what that tells the uh, protester is don't protest because if you get charged with misdemeanor X, you're gonna this is going to get reinstated, right? So there's a lot of different ways besides the laws that have been enacted that people have already been sort of trying to use criminal law to corral protesters, I guess. But these new laws are definitely more specific, and the criminal charges seem to be higher.
1: Have the courts ever specifically tried to define? peaceably?
3: Not really. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. What we know historically is that the framers were willing to tolerate a fair amount of disruption from protesters. They didn't require In fact, most understandings of the original notion of assembly were that you did not have to have a permit. You could go out and spontaneously protest as long as it did not devolve into violence. So there was a fair amount of disruption that was allowed in the first hundred or so years of the country. Cases began to evolve, and there's a long history and debate about why that is. But in the early 20th century, it began to evolve into this sense that, well, maybe cities could require permits. And then, of course, if there's violence involved, that's obviously a problem. But the issue of what peaceably means is... Not altogether clear. And, and that, that's a problem. So you have states that have riot statutes. So if you have a statute that says if six or more people assemble and violence occurs or something less than violence occurs, it's a riot or a mob. And it, so it becomes not a protest, but uh, you know a riot. And that's considerably more in the way of criminal penalties. You haven't really gotten a lot of guidance on that. And states all over the country are very different in how they define riot. So if, this, is a, this is a continuing issue.
1: It, it sounds as if it's easier to define what is not peaceable than what is.
3: Uh, yes, I think that's right. I mean, we know that if people set out to obviously commit violence and to instigate violent activity, that's a, a problem. But um, the treatment of how do you deal with a large group where some people might be violent, but most people aren't, that's obviously a problem. There are certainly cases at the Supreme Court level that talk about cities not being able to hold people guilty by association. On the other hand, there's some disconnect in those cases and what the cities actually do and so you know what courts say and what cities can get away with in terms of how they go after people are have been sort of two different things and that's partly because there's never been a perfect case right that it deals with all of these issues and so in the sense of how we deal with these especially large spontaneous groups that occurred last year after George Floyd's death, spontaneous protests are hard for cities to deal with because by definition, they don't have permits. Some states clearly have exceptions for those and they know they're going to happen and they just let them happen. Other states, by definition, those are illegal, right? So that becomes an issue for them because you're supposed to have a permit all the time. And then the issue becomes how policing occurs and the extent to which the police and the protesters interact and the extent to which there's a lot of violence versus a little. And, you know, is the whole protest a problem or is it just a few people? And so those issues are really not issues that people have dealt with well in a lot of the municipalities and states around the country.
2: It sounds like for a group to assemble and protest, that first they have to go through a permitting process in most places mm-hmm. in the United States. So that would be a decision by the executive branch, whether it's at the local, county, state level, I'm guessing.
3: So if usually there's an ordinance that's been enacted. Okay. So there's a legislative rule, like the law, the, the, either the state or the city. But then the decision made to issue the permit is at the executive branch level. Yes. Okay.
2: And if the group disagrees with the decision made by the executive branch, do they have the opportunity to seek an appeal either through the executive branch or through the courts?
3: Usually it goes through the executive branch first. They can try to appeal. And most of the rules regarding permits require that the decisions be made pretty quickly. So it's oftentimes people have particular days that they want to protest because it's meaningful to them. So these decision-making processes have to take place quickly, and then the appeals processes should take place quickly as well. If an appeal is denied, they can challenge it in the courts and possibly get an emergency injunction, but that's gonna take longer than what they want usually.
2: I have friends, I know people who have participated in protests. I know others who don't understand why anyone would participate in a protest. Regardless of someone's history, personally with protests, what do you think they should know or why do you think the average citizen should care about this right?
3: The ability to gather with people to discuss what is happening in the country is hugely important. If we can't talk with one another about current events, about actions that individuals, government actors or corporations or anybody is taking in this country... That's the beginning of our the inability of people in this country to govern themselves. So we have to be able to talk together. And although we can talk together on Zoom, and now we have all sorts of technology, the ability to gather, there's something primal, I think, about people being able to get together and talk. And there's certainly something about the power of collective action in public. One person can say what happened to George Floyd, for example, upset me. But when millions of people get together in the streets and say that, that message is very different than when each individual says it on their own. So there is something about the power of collective action that is really makes a message different than that individual message. And that that's really important.
1: This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Ease with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolfe. Legalese, that means we asked Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into common English. Judge?
0: Legalese. We Americans see an enduring picture or cartoon of the solitary person out on the street holding a sign expressing his opinion, as in, the end is near, or free Britney Spears. This solitary opinionator may be an American icon, exercising his right to free speech, but the critical thing about him is that he is solitary and thus mostly ineffective. But what if our American opinionator hero has about a thousand followers in the streets with him, or 10,000, or 100,000, or a million? We human beings are social animals, and we Americans seem fond of assembling. There is power in numbers. The solitary protester may persuade no one. But the protesters with a hundred thousand or a million like-minded humans may be powerful enough to establish rights for underpowered minorities or people who want to put an end to an unpopular war or whatever your cause may be. The founders of our country knew the importance of assembling, of collective action initiated by the people. The founders actually had done it. They had in the mid to late 1770s, as you remember from your history, Staged a revolution and overthrown the colonial governments that were subject to the monarchy powers of King George III. A revolution, of course, is the ultimate assembling. But when armed, an assembly is a threat to governmental order. And so the drafters of the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, added another powerful word, peaceably, to the word assemble. So just to be clear, the word peaceably comes before the word assemble. These 18th century writers were literate, and literate people back then did not split infinitives such as to assemble. They would not say to peaceably assemble. They could have said to assemble peaceably without breaking the traditional rule against splitting the infinitive. But if the word you want to emphasize is peaceably, then you put it first. So as the drafters of the First Amendment said, the right is, quote, peaceably to assemble, close quote. The former revolutionaries who had a hand in writing this were in favor of assembling, but they no longer apparently were in favor of violent assembling. There are references in the Declaration of Independence, true enough, about the right of people to revolt against oppressive governments. And there was no doubt that the American revolutionaries were taking up arms to fight for independence, not to hold seminars to discuss the merits of declaring independence from England. But the former revolutionaries' use of the phrase peaceably to assemble was a sign that the shooting was over, at least for a while, perhaps until the Civil War. We also have to remind ourselves that the Declaration of Independence is not law and that our laws do not condone armed conflict against the government. So how many Americans know that the First Amendment protects the right peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances? Only 10% could identify the right of assembly as a right protected by the United States Constitution, according to a 2017 poll by a well-known public policy center. There are a lot of people who assemble. All over the world, people assemble to change governments they don't like. We have seen protesters get their heads bashed in in the process. In the U.S., as in many but not all democracies, the right is protected by our supreme law, the Constitution as long as it is peaceful. The First Amendment to the United States Constitution lists various freedoms, the freedom of speech, freedom of religion, as examples, and includes today's topic, the right of the people peaceably to assemble. The Missouri Constitution has a similar provision, that the people have the right peaceably to assemble for their common good and to apply to those invested with the powers of government for redress of grievances by petition or remonstrance. Whoa, remonstrance, now there's a word. Remonstrance, protected explicitly by the Missouri Constitution, means forceful protest. And of course, what both constitutions recognize is that people with grievances have a right to act collectively to change government policy, or the government itself, presumably, but more by the ballot box than by street protests. Although public protest is likely to reverberate at the ballot box one way or the other successful democracies have safety valves that allow people to seek redress from their government for their grievances in our society we have elected legislators and elected chief executives subject to the ballot box and we have courts to redress legal wrongs but the right of collective action the right peaceably to assemble seems to be of equal dignity and sometimes has good effect when the normal processes of government seem unresponsive. The First Amendment is our Constitution's bedrock that assures that the people have a right to speak their truth to power, whether in solitary protest or robust assemblies that make their collective voices heard. Peaceably to assemble is the safety valve that allows for release of the tensions built up when large numbers of Americans have grievances that they want their government to remedy. Democracies need participation and the Constitution recognizes that the streets, as well as the ballot box, can be as legitimate for participation as the halls of government and the temples of justice. Used wisely and peaceably, they contradict the solitary guy with the sign, the end is near. The end is not near, but we can defend to our deaths his right to say that it is near. This is Mike Wolf, First Amendment cheerleader. Legal ease. Can organizers of a peaceable
1: demonstration be held in any way liable for damage that occurs when violence breaks out at their peaceable demonstration?
3: Generally, no. There is a case called NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware that says unless they intended for or instigated that violence, that just because there was violence that occurred doesn't mean that they themselves as the organizers should be held liable for that. There is a case now involving DeRay McKesson, who was one of the organizers or was one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement that is putting some strain on that issue. And that's problematic, but that rule should be pretty well established um, out of the Supreme Court.
1: I think back to 2014, I guess it was, when I was covering the Senate one day, and 18 ministers, and you are familiar with the case, I'm sure, 18 ministers got into the Senate gallery, the visitor's gallery, and interrupted the debate with prayers for Medicaid expansion, some songs. And it seems to me they're exercising their freedom of assembly, they're exercising their freedom of religion, and yet they were arrested and hauled into court. And I think you know, eventually there was a, a modest fine assessed against all of them as a misdemeanor. Can you explain the the balance of rights there that, that wound up with these people who were exercising rights on at least two or three different platforms winding up in court and facing a fine?
3: So the ability to gather outside is clearly pretty well established, although the issue of what is peaceable there, I think, is still under debate. When you go inside, the issue of what is disruptive that is like completely unexplored, honestly. So, unfortunately, because there is one area of the law that says that the government has the right to maintain control over its public property that isn't outdoor spaces, usually people who try to protest in those areas that aren't outdoor spaces lose. So they went into a public building. So it was a public meeting place. And they were protesting and trying to make a point. And they weren't violent. They didn't do anything. I mean, I don't know how long it took. I can't remember. But it wasn't terribly long, right? The order of the day wasn't terribly diminished by the end of things. We had something similar happen at the University of Missouri at a curator's meeting with some students, 30 minutes, and then it was over. But still, because of that right of the state to control that property to its own liking, that's considered trespass instead of a legitimate exercise of your assembly rights. Even though that's clearly what they were doing, what they thought they were doing, that's an area that I'm actually particularly interested in right now, because I think a lot of students and a lot of other people are wanting to make their points to people where they work. And they want to disrupt, even if briefly, what's happening in people's lives, because from a conflict perspective, that's the only way to get people's attention. And it's unfortunately an area that, in the First Amendment prudence, there's not a lot of protection for people who do things like that.
1: So, this is where conflict resolution comes in resolving conflict before things get out of hand. You're kind of a specialist in this field. Are there I don't want to say, is there a recipe for turning down the wick in situations like this? Or how do you deal with this, either legally or just diplomatically?
3: To say that I'm an expert in that aspect of things (laughs) would perhaps be wrong. Um, What I look at is why people protest. How did it get that? I mean, what is protest for? Because too often in the First Amendment area, people want to impose rules of civility on protesters that completely misunderstand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Right. If somebody wants to protest, it's because they're angry. They feel unheard. There are a lot of ways in which they haven't been able to express themselves. And so turning the wick down on them means really getting the other side to do something they probably haven't been doing, at least for a while. And so that's that's hard. That means getting the other side to understand you really have to listen now. You have to put this in context. You, ha- you can't keep saying no or denying what's happened or dismissing or avoiding or whatever conflict resolution tactic you've been taking. And those are big, big steps for one of the parties you know in the conflict to take. And especially when you're basically at the level of escalation where you've gotten protests like that, I think that's basically what's happening, for example, right now with our sort of racial reckoning, that you, you're getting one side to say, we ha- you have to listen to us now. You must listen. It probably takes a little bit of turning to a different tactic after the protests with the group of people who, once you say you have to listen, you have to sort of talk, right, as opposed to protest. But that assumes the other side will, in fact, listen. I don't think there's anything wrong with people getting to the point where they protest. That's just something that happens. If you were to want to avoid that, it would mean that people would have had to start out long ago, dealing with that conflict very differently by really actually having a conversation instead of what was probably more an argument or simply not having a discussion at all. Right? So the the protest itself is evidence of the fact that something Didn't work early on.
1: It's a matter of heading off trouble before it actually starts.
3: You would have to figure out how to do that, yes. And when you have something as significant as the racial strife that we've had in this country, I don't think that's probably the answer. (laughs) There's got to be a different way of dealing with that.
2: If I'm wanting to go participate in a protest, what are some tips or advice that you would give me that I should be aware of within that right? Are there things that I should and should not do?
3: Obviously, I would avoid violence. just the way that I would say that. Any sign of violence or property destruction is going to get you into a problem right away. So, no matter how much you think that, you know, lighting that trash can on fire or, you know, burning down this house in protest or whatever is, a, you know, and that happens, right? I mean, I get that people are, can be very angry, those are problematic. So those are issues. But the truth is, there's been a lot of protests that never had that kind of violence, right? That most of them really just didn't have that kind of violence. And then the question becomes, for me, in those situations for protesters, be aware of your surroundings, right? Understand that when you protest, as a general rule, and I feel strongly that it is probably a very scary thing for many police to see a, a large protest. I do, I think that that's probably, it's it's a, it's a kind of a undulating mass of people. But when the police decide to respond, there is a lot of evidence that those responses are going to be pretty broad, right? And so you need to understand where you are and what you are going to do as an exit strategy. That's what I've always talked to my daughter about. You need to have an exit strategy in a protest, unless you just want to be arrested because it's a badge of honor for you. And there are a lot of things that can happen in those situations.
1: I've seen some signs at protests that are, well, less than tasteful, let's put it that way. Are are there any limits on signs or symbols at protests that can be seen as inciting violence just by their presence and therefore be subject to confiscation, for example, or arrest of the person with the sign?
3: Yeah, so that's a that's a really good question. Generally, the answer to that is no. And incitement or an an instigation via fighting words are generally very much contextual in nature. And they really involve two people or one person and a crowd of uh, people or two crowds of people kind of going at each other. And it really has to be sort of directed. So I worked a lot on the sort of Westboro Baptist Church cases where they held up some of the most offensive signs at people's funerals. And they were terrible and at a time where people were in anguish. But because of the way they did it and they stayed 500 feet away and they held up these signs and they held up the same signs at every funeral, the court was clear and and absolutely consistent with its jurisprudence. That's not fighting words. Those they're offensive but they aren't directed at any one person. And so that's really what has to happen for it to be incitement is you have to basically be nagging someone, you know, you're poking at someone. It's it's like that person who's poking at you. That's really what they need for that to happen in those kinds of situations. It's certainly possible that there could be a situation like that where someone is trying to incite a crowd, but it's almost always verbal as opposed to science.
2: In those cases, I also tend to then think of I think it was the freedom of road riders. I could have the group name wrong that would then assemble wherever they knew that group was going to be to almost show like a different type of assembly. And they'd have their motorcycles, mm-hmm. maybe leave the engines on to drown out any chanting that may have occurred. Right.
3: No, the freedom riders. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they, they—that that is an interesting case where you have somebody who wants to speak and speaks and says these terrible things. And then the freedom riders come in and they, Or counter speech—a wall of counter speech against them, basically. Even though they don't really have signs or anything, it's all symbolic. That wall of people between them and the funeral goers was a symbolic sort of statement of "We aren't going to let this happen here." And those kinds of interactions happen a lot. Um, They're contentious the people are annoyed with one another, they're angry, but they're not, neither side is engaging in fighting words at that level. And that's, protests are like that. That's one of the things that I try to remind when I teach my students. Protests are not usually super pretty. They're often boisterous, they're often angry, and they're still peaceable. Peaceable involves a lot of different things, but they don't involve people like, you know, sitting and drinking tea.
1: Well, this whole issue of freedom of assembly reminds us, I guess, that Every right in the Constitution is not an absolute right. Can we say that, Professor?
3: Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, There are many legitimate restrictions that the courts will allow on protests. I personally don't love them, but I do understand that they are legal and that the Supreme Court has allowed them. And as long as the city has or the state has a significant interest or an important substantial interest and the restrictions that they put on there are not content based and they allow, you know, reasonable protests, then generally the courts are going to uphold those. And safety, you've you've identified many safety, access, lack of you don't want to have the entire city disrupted by a mass protest. So there are lots of things that courts will look at and say, yeah, these restrictions are fine.
2: This
1: has been one of the basic issues of our time is the right to protest and the freedom we have to protest. And it's one of these issues that has many facets. We want to thank you very much for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal Two to explore all of the nuances of this constitutional right that we have. Is It Legal Two is a special production of the Missouri Bar, and we want to thank Christina Wells from the University of Missouri-Columbia School of Law for helping us understand this important right and explore some of those nuances within it.
2: Yes. Thank you for joining us, Professor. Well, thank you for having me. Tony Simons, the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, is here to share more.
4: In the past year, we've seen a wide range of Americans from vastly different parts of the political spectrum take to the streets to register their outrage at events that they find unacceptable. Some contend that this is a recent development, a product of our polarized times. In truth, It is but the latest example of how perceptive Shakespeare was when he wrote, What's Past is Prologue. In the 1939 Supreme Court case of Hague versus Committee for Industrial Organization, Justice Owen Roberts wrote the following, Wherever the title of streets and parks may rest, they have immemorially been held in trust for the use of the public and time out of mind, have been used for purposes of assembly, communicating thoughts between citizens, and discussing public questions. Such use of the streets and public places has, from ancient times, been a part of the privileges, immunities, rights, and liberties of citizens. This quotation captures the importance not only of protecting the right of people to believe what they want and preserving the right of the people to speak what they believe, but also safeguarding the ability of individuals to join with other like-minded people to present their views. Speech is designed to convey a message, the right to assemble with others shapes the manner in which that message is conveyed and may determine whether that message is conveyed successfully. Almost inevitably, a hundred voices unified behind a message will have a greater impact than the observations of a single person. The framers of the Constitution understood this. They had witnessed this reality at work as they moved toward independence, and that is why they extended constitutional protection not only to speech, but also to assembly. As far back as 1876, the Supreme Court noted, the right of the people peaceably to assemble for the purpose of petitioning for a redress of grievances is an attribute of national citizenship, and as such, under the protection of and guaranteed by the United States. The very idea of a government, Republican in form, implies a right on the part of its citizens to meet peaceably for consultation in respect to public affairs and to petition for a redress of grievances. These judicial affirmations of the right to assemble border on poetry. They celebrate a right that is essential for our constitutional system of government. Now, does all this mean that the right to assemble is absolute? Certainly not. The very thing that gives an assemblage of people its power also presents its greatest liability. Passionate people coming together to present their deeply held beliefs in a public setting may unleash chaos and lawlessness. Even the most freedom-embracing country in the history of the world cannot allow that to happen. Liberty cannot be allowed to devolve into anarchy. In the Hague case referenced earlier, in which Justice Roberts waxed philosophic about freedom of assembly, he went on to point out the privilege of a citizen of the United States to use the streets and parks for communication of views on national questions may be regulated in the interests of all. It is not absolute, but relative, and must be exercised in subordination to the general comfort and convenience, and in consonance with peace and good order. The Supreme Court would take up this issue of when individual liberty must yield to the interests of society just a couple of years later in Cox versus New Hampshire, a 1941 decision. In this case, State law prohibited a parade or procession upon a public street without first obtaining a license from the local government. When over 50 Jehovah's Witnesses took to the streets of Manchester, New Hampshire, without obtaining such a license, they were convicted in municipal court of violating the law. The defendants challenged the law and took their case to the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, writing for a unanimous court, signaled his intention to side with the government when he noted at the outset that there would be no civil liberties for anyone without the imposition of law and order. Hughes went on to elaborate upon the government's need to control movement on city streets, writing, The authority of a municipality to impose regulations in order to assure the safety and convenience of the people in the use of public highways has never been regarded as inconsistent with civil liberties, but rather as one of the means of safeguarding the good order upon which they ultimately depend. The control of travel on the streets of cities is the most familiar illustration of this recognition of social need. Hughes then asserted one of the most frequently accepted limitations on the First Amendment, writing, If a municipality has authority to control the use of its public streets for parades or processions, as it undoubtedly has, It cannot be denied authority to give consideration to time, place, and manner in relation to the other proper uses of the streets. This time, place, and manner restriction would become one of the main tools used by governments in restricting rights promised by the First Amendment. When they would use this doctrine, governments would argue that they were not targeting the content of the speech or the reason for the assembly, but rather merely the time, place, and manner in which that speech would be given or that assembly held. Let us return once more to Justice Roberts in Hague. While he conceded that freedom of assembly is not absolute and must be regulated, He went on to caution that the right of assembly must not, in the guise of regulation, be abridged or denied. What Roberts was saying here is that while the government will be given wide latitude to ensure safety and order, the government should not use that legitimate authority as a facade to violate important civil liberties. Justice Roberts' cautionary note anticipated what would happen. Some government entities began using the time, place, and manner doctrine to shut down speech and assemblies that they didn't want to happen. One of the classic examples occurred in the late 1970s when the American Nazi Party sought to hold a demonstration in Skokie, Illinois, a city with a substantial Jewish population and home to hundreds of Holocaust survivors. The city was understandably protective of its citizens. However, good intentions do not necessarily equate with constitutional actions. Skokie enacted a number of ordinances under the guise of time, place, and manner restrictions that were in fact attempts to shut down the speech it found offensive. One ordinance required the Nazis to post an insurance bond of several hundred thousand dollars when that amount was not required of any other group. Another ordinance prohibited members of political parties from participating in demonstrations while wearing military-style uniforms, another clear targeting of the Nazis. Ultimately, a federal court ruled in favor of the Nazis. And while Nazis are not necessarily the most sympathetic of parties, had Skokie prevailed, it would have set a precedent for cities to shut down the rights of groups they did not like. That would have been a precedent that placed First Amendment rights at risk. Almost half a century after Cox versus New Hampshire, the Supreme Court would have to define what time, place, and manner restrictions allowed government to do in Heffron versus International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Time, place, and manner restrictions were acceptable, provided that they are justified without regard to the content of the regulated speech, that they serve a significant government interest, and that they leave open ample alternative channels for communication of the information. If those conditions are not met, then it is not a legitimate use of the time, place, and manner doctrine. Like so many of our constitutional rights, freedom of assembly has been accurately characterized as essential for the operation of our system in the manner designed by the framers. And like so many of those rights, the court has decided that this freedom, while vital, is not absolute. The court has been willing to create a justification for governments to limit freedom of assembly. As governments are inclined to do, they sometimes test the limits of their power. This puts a constant stream of cases in front of the court to assess the legitimacy of lines being drawn between individual liberty and and governmental authority. For some, this lack of certainty is frustrating. They want nice, neat boxes that inevitably reveal what is and is not protected, what the government can always do and what the government can never do. For others, this is the genius of the system and why our constitution has lasted for over two centuries. Our constitutional system abhors extremes and strives for pragmatic solutions. Given the intricacy and importance of issues raised by the protests in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, as well as the events of January 6th, the Constitution's flexibility and the judiciary's quest to find the balance between individual freedom and societal interests is something that serves us very well in these volatile times.
2: Nothing further, Your Honor. There are some resources you might want to check out, whether you're involved in criminal proceedings or whether you have other legal questions, for instance, about the right to peaceably assemble or other constitutional rights. You can find those at missourilawyershelp.org. That's missourilawyershelp.org. We have an array of information there on various legal topics, all aimed at helping you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fite. And I'm Bob Pretty.
1: We'll see you in the next edition of Is It Legal Too?